So even though I've more or less given your name away, I'm just going to keep calling you Mr. You can call me Mrs. It's kind of cute. I'm going to call you Sally <laughs> from Indianapolis. <laughs> I just want to be your Mrs. Okay. Anyway, so um, welcome to what we think is episode two of Digital Disentanglement. And uh, Mr. and I here are today going to talk about um, the perils of being an early adopter and why being a Luddite turned out to be a good thing for me after all. So, uh, yeah, well, I'm, I have some excuses. My dad owned a small computer consultancy. Uh, and when I was young, from the time I was five or six, I remember going to his office and playing on the Digital Equipment Corporation terminals where we played Doom, which was later commercialized as Zork. Um, and uh, we had a PC in our home when I was six or seven, and Microsoft F Flight Simulator, and my dad actually ended up running the local internet service provider, or one of them, and very from very early on was a mail server and, and, and list serve and all these sorts of things. So we always had these things running around our house from a very early age. And so this is what we call the innocent early days of the internet, when it was free and democratic and creative and idiosyncratic and not commercialized yet, right? It's yeah, like well, I mean, the we pristine would, wild west. Before there was local internet hookups, we would call up the local bulletin board system, and you would get your, you would either send out your email or you could browse the various things that the local geeks had put up there to share with other people. I remember my, my dad was a fairly early adopter of PCs, though not of the internet, but I remember the first time we had something like it, there was actually a text-based video game you could play where you had to say, turn left, and then it would tell you, you turned left and got eaten by a werewolf. It would just like, type back the answer to you. <laughs> and I only had one session when, before I went back to the Nintendo. Yeah. I think all of our listeners know exactly how old we are now. Anyway, <laughs> so... But then when, like, the World Wide Web becomes available and you go off to college, you became, what was that phrase you used to characterize yourself? An internet horror? <laughs> because you'd sign up for anything. I'd sign up for anything. I would. I wouldn't sign up for anything. I mean, I... I remember very early on, I was I joined eBay. This is back uh, in the late 90s, 90... 90 yeah, late 90s, 96, 97. And I remember um, buying some things on eBay, or, or that maybe is even too early. It was very early, though, 2000. And uh, getting a PayPal account. and um, I was buying things on Amazon by 95, I think. Mm, not 95. Maybe when you in college? Yeah. Okay, anyway, go on. <laughs> uh, okay, let me just tell this quick story. So I only would buy things online from the computer at my office at the writing center or the like the shared office at the writing center and like I remember after I'd bought a few whatever books on it I came back one day and I turned on the computer and went to www.amazon.com and it said welcome back Sarah and I, I swear to you I looked around the room for where the cameras were and how they knew it was me <laughs> I only realized much later this thing called an IP address and uh, cookies <laughs> and uh, other such things so yeah, you were you were clear, clued in earlier than I did and had fewer Luddite reactions. But you signed up for everything. That's kind of the point that we're doing. Yeah, so to. I just kind of signed up for everything. And I remember very early on, I had my first email address that was through my dad's ISP, and I would sign up for all this stuff. I had an email address at my college and then through my dad's. 
Um, and then I had one at the grad school where I was going to. So I had three email addresses already. But I just tended, you know, why not just call it, use one? <laughs> one email address to rule them all. Right. And so I remember just signing up for everything. And my first passwords were pathetically short. You know, like everybody's were. I think six or seven characters or something. It wasn't one, two, three, four, five, six. Or <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, D that's not your name. No. Mr. Mr. <laughs> Or A, B, C, D, et cetera. Anyway, they, but they were pathetically weak by um, contemporary standards. And I'm, and I'm sure they're all now uh, out on the Internet. If you wanted to re, uh, reverse engineer the hash lists, you could easily find many of the sites where I had, a, okay. where I had accounts. So, um, but by 2000, I don't know, 2003, I, my, that account, those first couple of accounts I had are all shut down. I don't know what they are, but I still have the email account that I used in graduate school starting from 2003, I believe. And I have email going back there. And because I'm a, not only an internet whore, but an internet, but a, but a male hoarder. <laughs> Is that M-A-I-L or M-A-L-E? So everything, I remember thinking, I don't even know why, but just because I like to save everything and because it's the internet, it doesn't take up any space. Um, I just did. And I put, every time I signed up for a site, it, it would, they'd send you a mail an email saying you have signed up for this site here's your click the and then would put that in a special folder for things i had signed now, up when for when you say folder is this on your computer there's no cloud yet obviously no this is on this is in the email no this is in the email okay in the email program this okay. is like they you could make folders so basically if anyone ever hacked into your email account they'd have access to all your passwords to all of your no then they don't have access to the passwords but they'd have a list of all the sites where i had accounts i see so they now, now and i've gone back and changed the passwords to them all but so right. um but i um i still have that account and so i remember just recently since i'm newly aware of all the data that's running around um stolen from the internet and sold and mined and used for uh, identity theft and um, confidence tricks of various kinds. But also the still legal and apparently legitimate extractions of Google and other, other major um, internet search engines and everything. Everything is extracting and mining your information all the time. It's not just bad guys, in quotes. No, not just bad guys, but I, there's, there are threats. Um, I mean, there's some uh, more nefarious or more uh, uh, immediate repercussions for criminal use of your information. Right. Okay. So in the past, since we last recorded between episode one and episode two, you have been going back and trying to locate all of your... Yeah. But part of it is I've got, I've got the... I'm newly aware of this problem. And so my first reaction is I want to erase everything. <laughs> This is a pointless task, but that was one of the things that I thought I might do. So I tried to go back to, I had a couple of email addresses that I used for junk that I said, okay, I'm just going to go back. I'm going to sh shut these things down. Okay. And do you think, I mean, or do you know if when you shut down account, an account, does that just mean nobody but the company itself can get to it anymore? Or is it actually like somehow scrubbed from the digital record? Do you have any idea? Um, it goes, I suppose, more into the background. I mean, there are these things called, uh, there are scrapers, internet data scrapers, that just trawl the internet and suck everything in. That's what Google does. They just have these servers that just visit everywhere and suck in all the information and put it in their computers. Mm -hmm. So the information is not gone from that. But like an email account is at the server of the place you have the email account at, and that that is not open to the internet in general. Okay, but I mean like, okay, so... 
theoretically you've probably had an account at the New York Times. Right. Like not even a paid account probably, just, yeah, just the one you up. do right. to get access to a certain number of articles. Right. So if you delete that account, does the New York Times still have a record that you used to have the account? Do they keep it somewhere? Or is it just... Somewhere they keep it, but it kind of goes out of the, the live site. So does that mean it's just safe from scrapers? Is that the main reason you would delete something like that? No, it has nothing to... It's not technically at all. It's just a, it's just a kind of moral sensation. I, I just want to get rid of it. <laughs> okay, this is a moral task. Well, I just... Because it, what we've discovered is how this digital... These g digital traces never go away. No, they never go away. And so, so, like even, deleting is not deleting. This this was. It's taking deleting is is taking it out of active use, and it does, and because your data does take some space to store, depending on the entity, they're just gonna they they will delete it because they don't want to have to store your information, but some traces of all accounts are potentially out there. They they're on some backup tape somewhere in some basement. Is it actually a tape in that case? Usually it's a tape, yeah. For for big backups, tapes are still used because for our, no especially for archives, yeah. That's so freaky and old-fashioned. That's so freaky and old-fashioned. Oh, my gosh. All right, well, so... <laughs> all right, so I'm a little thrown here to find out that this was mainly a moral choice on, on your part. So how many... Um, all right, so... What was the point other than the moral victory then? I'm a little lost. Uh, also, well, there I have a couple of photo sites where I had uploaded photos. This is much, this is later. This is like 10, 15 years ago or something. I remember because we had digital camp photos and we wanted to share them with people and right. you know, upload them to these various sites. And, and those I just wanted to get out just so that I didn't have pictures of uh, family right. and my person floating around in random places. Right. But again, are those really gone now? Like if someone went to archive.org, or I understand, or like Wayback Machine, could they still get those? Or do you think they're really gone? Um, I don't know. Okay, that might be homework for next time to find out <laughs> if these things are really, believe, really gone. So I think, believe, so at a place like Instagram, for example, you, if you have an account there, I don't believe that... Um, archive.org is cataloging all those Instagram pictures. But maybe, maybe it is. I don't know. I have to, would have to go and take a look. Okay. So those things, they still exist. Um, but anything that's in kind of database that's that's controlled by a password and a login, a login and a password is not just being randomly scraped. It's okay. being... It's being um, so that's some small consolation. And then I think you told me the other reason to do this is because using the same email address for everything, all the accounts you have online, basically creates like a a portrait you know you can triangulate or multi-angulate all of these things that makes it easier and easier for people and corporations and exploitative interests to form an ever more accurate picture of you is yeah, that so right it, it makes i mean we're people right we live in one body and we think of ourselves as one thing and it makes sense uh, to have one account that represents you virtually on the internet and we've i think recently that has been one email account or one for maybe one for your business and one for your private life or something like that. But I think that the problem, uh, there's a big problem with that when you're engaging in random uh, profligate, uh, promiscuous internet behavior <laughs> <laughs> um, is that all of these uh, different profiles getting, get end up being attached to you and scraped in various ways and to build what ends up being a very accurate profile of you and, um, lets somebody be able through by scraping these various um, uh, search databases and a lot of breached data to be, um, 
to be able to make a real portrait of you. And I guess the issue, that's one, one of the thing I wanted to say is that the more your data is out there on the internet, it's not so much, um, it's not so much what you have put out there publicly that's necessarily the problem. It's the fact that when you entrust your personal information to a third party by giving them your real name, your real birth date of birth, your real address, your real phone number, your real email address, they might respect that information, but news comes out every day, every week, every month of some entity whose databases have been hacked and all the information downloaded and then put up on a public file. So suddenly this information, which um, is not necessarily uh, something you're hiding from the world, but it's neither is it as something that you're broadcasting everywhere. This is who I am and this is where I live. Um, that becomes almost the equivalent of public information. And what's happening is that that kind of transparency means one thing if you can look your name up in the local telephone book. And it means a very different thing if anybody, anyone in the world, can search through all of these breached databases to try to find targets or try to find, um, to develop uh, these um, profiles for identity theft and other kinds of fraud. Okay. Well, just for the record, I'd like to say that my birth date is January 1st, 1900. Yeah. And I was born in the 19th century. So. <laughs> I always went for an older man. Okay. So, okay. So that, that is a good practical problem. One reason to get rid of this, but you know, it's, it's, I still see that there is like a more deeply rooted, like moral philosophical identity problem here, because it's interesting that you said the whole reason why we tend to have one email address for everything, or like maybe a personal and a public is because we still maybe, and maybe for us, because we got all the way through childhood, mostly without this hyper-connected reality that we do actually identify our identity with our bodies and our singular self. But um, obviously one of the huge things that's happened to especially younger people who have grown up only with the internet is this proliferation of avatars and versions of selves. And it's much easier to cordon off and be this self here and that self here. And so it's like, it seems to me that in order to protect yourself from the, the uh, predatory and doxing aspects of the everything internet now that we're trying to talk about in this podcast and get a grip on, it forces you into this split self presence. I mean, it's like, if you're just one person, you're easy to exploit. If you're lots of different people, you start to encode in your own mind, this kind of schizophrenic or multiple internet personality disorder kind of thing. This, yeah. This troubles me like on a deeper level than even the exploitative potential of my data being out there. Yeah, so it does. It makes your, I, it makes it almost forces you to develop multiple personalities in order to protect the real one. Right, but I guess never your bodily identity was never a public fact that seven billion people could access instantly. I mean, I guess that's the the genuine difference. No, it required you being in a locale. It required you calling up the records office. It required you actually getting police involvement or a private investigator or or you just lived life locally and you're the community that knew your identity knew you directly yeah in that case yeah. there's no there is in that sense not a need to hide but there is something novel with 
the ubiquity of this information in the internet age that has changed how we have to think about privacy and data protection right. that really forces us to imagine um, different ways of, of protecting that information about ourselves right. in order that we can maintain that bodily autonomy. Right. Gosh, it really is a devil's choice. All right. Well, how many, uh, as we wrap up here, how many accounts do you think you located and closed down since you started working on this? Oh, just a couple. Not 51,000. No, not 51,000. <laughs> no, but I do have, I use Password Manager now, mm -hmm. and um, I do have over 600 entries in that Password Manager. That just blows my mind. I mean, I started using one a lot later than you did, but I don't have anywhere near that many. And I don't think there are many that I have that I don't use fairly often. Right. And a lot of those are simply abandoned. And um, so it's my plan to uh, go through all of those and just try to shut down the accounts that I can. Now, some of that information is going to be out there um, through data breaches, but it will but would prevent any of that information from leaking in future data breaches. Okay. So then I think the takeaway, we're going to try to end each of these episodes with a takeaway, is that if you are aware of internet accounts you've created that you are not using, that are, are attached to the same email you use for everything else, get into them and shut them down just to make one less, less point on the plot to grid you with or one less point on the grid to plot you with. I think that's what I meant to say, right? That's one thing you can do is delete them. You can add one more. Um, my mind went blank when I misspoke. So <laughs> yeah, either delete them, especially if they don't have much information, or what you might do if it's an important account, what you might do is simply put it, set it, uh, delete any personal information that you have from it, and then make a really hard password that nobody's going to guess, and then just leave it in your password manager and park it. That is, in many ways, for certain accounts, that may be even a better solution because one of the unfortunate realities is that if you have uh, an account that's prominently associated with your name and you delete that account and somebody later creates an account with the same username, they can then pretend to be you. And that has been a problem with certain services. Um, uh, so some... you mean like reserving real estate? Like we just found out that somebody created a fake Instagram account of my dad because he had a Facebook account but not an Instagram account. Exactly. So the point would be creating the Instagram account even if you have no intention of using Instagram just to prevent anyone else from creating it. If you it. have a common username that's known and identified with you, it might be useful for you to have all the accounts with that handle <laughs> in your name and just park at them so that somebody else can't impersonate you. Right. They'll that's not a guarantee because you can still be... They can adapt it and you still use your photo. Like I remember when I was still on Facebook, I would get duplicate friend requests from the same person, yeah. same photo. But if you haven't really used the account, it's not very important to you. There's absolutely no reason not simply to go in and try request that it be deleted. Um, or if it's somewhat more important, just park it with as strong a security as you can. Okay. That's what I was actually thinking of password manager. But I think maybe the next one we'll talk about passwords and why they matter and how to do them well. Okay, mister? All right, missus.